Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 63. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a great guest, Keith Nelson, also known as Kinko the Clown and Keith Bindlestiff from the Bindlestiff Family Circus. We have a great talk coming up, but before we get to that, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. Of course, that stands for International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers, their products and festivals can be found at juggle.org. And don't forget, it's almost Christmas time, about three months or so, and you can still get yourself a Ring Dama by going to ringdama.com. That's the skill toy I invented that's a cross between a yo-yo and a kendama. Find one today at ringdama.com. All right, we've introduced the guest. We've thanked our sponsors. Now drop everything and get ready for Keith Nelson. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 63, the multi-talented, multifaceted Mr. Keith Nelson. Welcome, Keith. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you. You're one of my oldest longtime friends in the IGA. I still remember our first meeting where you taught me a very valuable skill, which was how to use the last piece of toilet paper. But I think it's one of those skills that you visually have to see it described to um, understand how it works. And fortunately, one I've never actually needed. But you never know. You never know. It might come in handy one day. Now, we have a lot to cover, so I want to go right to the very beginning. The young Keith Nelson. I always associated with New York City, but actually you grew up in North Carolina. Tell me about your early childhood, your parents, your siblings, and what young Keith Nelson was like. I was born in Massachusetts okay. um, in, in 1970, and then at about three months old, we drove south. My parents are both educators and were getting jobs down in, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So they loaded me up before I knew how to walk, talk, or anything else, and moved to North Carolina. And I would say spent my, all my formative years in Winston-Salem and then in Advance, North Carolina, which is a rural um, town right outside of Winston. Now, I think I don't want to say that you were nerdy, but it seems like you have a couple of nerdy things on your childhood resume. One is you played the tuba. How did you get started playing the tuba? I mean, first of all, how can you call such a heavy metal sort of existence nerdy? Well, it's it's heavy and it's metal, but it's not heavy metal. Huh. My dad was a tuba player, so I would venture to say it was somewhat genetic. And when, um, I mean, I started on baritone at a younger age, and then as soon as somebody got a larger instrument than me in the band, I moved on to tuba. Now, were you always interested in show business? Were you attracted to... Show business, music, performing, things like that? There were moments. My first album that I ever had on vinyl that I bought with my own money was Grease. Okay. Um, but then I got in a little trouble because I traded it for Kiss Alive 2. There you go. All right, so a Kiss fan. Was it the makeup or the music? I would definitely say it was um, the pyro and the makeup and the shoes. Gotcha. Yeah, those big shoes that Gene Simmons wore, the big monster boots. Oh, I love the shoes. You throw, throw that in a split tongue and some fire spitting, and to me, that's good entertainment. Now, of course, eventually we'll get to the fact that you went into the sideshow industry. Were you sort of interested in that kind of gothic, fire spitting, blood spitting type of thing? Was that one of your things? No, I would say that came later in life. I got into fire through Boy Scouts of America. I was vice chief of ceremonies in the Order of the Arrow. And we would put on these big fire pageants, and I learned how to rig up arrows that could burn while they got shot, and torches and bonfires that could burn in different ways. It was honestly through Boy Scouts that I got into being a counselor, being comfortable in front of a group, and doing skits and stupid comedy. I'm very impressed, too, that you actually became an Eagle Scout. That's certainly a term I've heard, but how does one become an Eagle Scout? Once you join Scouts, you kind of do the program that you don't start chasing other things other than scouts. The major thing is in the end, you do a community project called the, the Eagle Project. And for me, I did, I looked at all of the businesses in Davie County where I was raised during that part of my life and looked at the handicap accessibility of all the businesses. But it was basically you just kind of, you, you do the requirements, you spend the time, you go do all of the camping trips and events, and gradually work your way through. Now, is there a certain number of badges you have to have? All I know about Boy Scouts are badges and camping. There's what they call merit badges, which are specific subject matter 
for each merit badge. And then you have like the different ranks that are star, life, eagle, first class. So you kind of work your way up through the ranks. And through that, you have for different ranks, you have to have so many merit badges and different re- requirements. Now, is there a juggling merit badge? Was, did you get introduced in juggling through the scouts, or how did you get access to juggling? At least when I was in, um, there was not a juggling merit badge that may have changed. I honestly didn't get into juggling, per se, to really my college years. The devil stick was my gateway prop, and that was through um, primarily the Grateful Dead. I started, um, I went to my first Dead show when I was 15 with the preacher's son, and his girlfriend, okay. we drove, jumped in the back of a pickup truck and went from North Carolina to Philadelphia. And, and um, so began my infatuation with the dead. And I picked up the devil stick and started kind of just doing it in the parking lots. Well, it's, it's like you toured with the Grateful Dead. That means you, you were a deadhead. You followed them around from concert to concert. I was a deadhead. I lived in the parking lots. I didn't necessarily get in to see all the shows. Many times I was just as happy to be beyond the parking lot enjoying the culture. But in that culture, there's lots of sort of object manipulation, isn't there? There's juggling. And was poi a big thing back then? Are people spinning poi or hula hoops? Or was it mostly devil stick and juggling? It was devil stick and juggling, some contact hoops sort of came later in as I would say as far as being majorly popular. But kind of in the world that I was spending time in, it was much more traditional juggling and, and the devil sticks. Now, are you still a, a Deadhead fan? Or are you still a, a fan of the Grateful Dead? Still um, enjoy the music quite a bit. What are they called now? Are they called... Um, Dead, Dead and Company. Gotcha. Um, I, pre- I prefer the days when Jerry was there. And if you really get into it, I really enjoyed it when Pigpen was also involved. So, you know, early Dead. I have to admit, I've never been to a Grateful Dead concert. Um, you can't go anymore. Yeah, I missed out. I missed out. But I never went to college either. And you went to Hampshire College. I did go to Hampshire College, and which was a really good place to be as a deadhead. It's actually at Hampshire that I got into juggling. My next door neighbor, best friend in college was a fellow named David Hunt, who lives on the West Coast. You may know him. He's Yeah. He was a president of the American Youth Circus Organization for a few years. He's now working with Prescott, um, the Prescott Circus Youth Program. And Circus Bella, right? And he was uh, one of the co-founders, I think, of Circus Bella. But he was my first juggling partner and taught me the basics of juggling. And then about that same time, I learned how to fire, eat fire because I traded a bottle of whiskey for some fire eating lessons with some jugglers and then taught David how to eat fire. Now, see here you have a BA in social sciences, another term that I'm not sure exactly what it means. What do you study when you study social sciences? My thesis, basically senior thesis, which is called Division Three at Hampshire because they go with a Div 1, Division 2, Division 3, not your usual sophomore, senior sort of structure. But it ends with kind of a year of being infatuated and working on your senior thesis, which mine was an anarchist theory. More specifically, it was looking at the American adaptation of situationist theory which is kind of this anarcho-postmodern theoretical concept of spectacle and life. Mm, That sounds interesting. It sounds like it actually has some sort of practical applications for the producing and shows you went on to do later. It's, I mean, there's been a lot of crossover, and I would say circus probably kept me from going to jail with um, some of my more radical thoughts and ways to get my voice out there. I always thought that fire eating was a very radical skill because I've had friends who've done fire eating and fire spitting, I'm always worried about the health concerns. Were you ever worried about the health of the liver or getting that gas into your mouth? Any any ill effects? Um, when I was doing it in my mid-20s, absolutely not. Now that you know I'm um, coming up to the half-century mark, uh, I think a little bit more about my health. Yeah, I'm always worried about that, the long-term effects. I mean, it's um, you know, we live in a very toxic world, toxic environment. Who knows what's going to get you? I hear everybody has plastic in their bodies. Like every single person now has plastic. Our whole environment's become a plastic world. It's a shame. I wish there was simpler days with the pig pen and Grateful Dead, and we could go back to those days, but life moves on. That's what they say. At moments, I feel like we're slipping back, though. (laughs) I hope so. I hope there's some return to decency and normalcy. But we'll get into the whole political stuff in a bit. 
So you're in college. Did you have a different vision of yourself other than being a performer? Did you have another career track? In college, there was a little while that I thought I would be a creative philosophical writer. There was a, a chunk that I saw myself as being a, I guess, career activist, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it was the whole idea of performance. I mean, there were elements kind of throughout my youth that really connected. I went to see a mud show when I was about 10. What is a mud show exactly? Like a, like a circus show? What's a mud show? A mud show is a circus show that sets up and moves every single day. The classic, when you think of like the small tented show, kind of moving to town and doing stuff and then boom, the next day they're gone. But this Mexican mud show had a elephant dog that if you paid a quarter, you could see the elephant dog. So I paid my quarter, went behind the wall, and there was a dog that had been shaved. <laughs> And it was at that moment that I realized that you could shave a dog and make a living. Yeah, because I remember when I was in the Renaissance Fair, they always had a mud show. And it was actually an act that had a big mud pit and would do tricks and, and stunts and comedy while eating mud, playing with mud, throwing mud. Huh. And that's what we called a mud show back in the Renaissance Fair days. Yeah, in the circus world, it's a show that just moves every day. Now, speaking about moving every day... In my notes here, in 1991, I have that you walked across the United States. I mean, I only actually did Texas to New York. The walk that I was with did Los Angeles to New York, but um, I had to finish a semester of school, so I couldn't join them in the beginning. It was called A Global Walk for a Livable World. So how long does it take to go from Texas? I know Texas itself, even to drive across, takes day after day after day. How long of a trip was that? The whole walk was approximately nine months, L.A. to New York, and then Texas to New York was six months. So you were always involved in the sort of uh, causes and being an activist, and that was part of that, an off-reach of that? It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely my, I guess, environmental and social conscience that brought me there. And I would venture to say it's that same mindset that brought me into circus. And so what was your first experience as working a, as a professional performer? What were your first gigs like? My first gigs were... Street performing, devil sticks and some fire, generally outside of an arena, um, trying to make enough money to go see the dead. Okay, right. And then post-college, when I moved to New York, I got a job as a fire eater in an exotic cabaret. And it was really at that moment that I realized that I could make a living doing this. So your, your skills at that point were you mostly were a fire performer, kind of sort of going towards the sideshow area? Um, fire performing and mediocre juggling at best. I mean, juggling and fire kind of happened at the same time. Now, if you look at your list of skills and talents, though, you seem to be a guy who's always adding new skills. So you're always interested in kind of furthering your talent base. So did you look at it more of being more of a, a generalist? You didn't want to specialize in one thing because you have such a, an extensive list of talents. Is that how you approached it? I mean, I never wanted to have to say no to somebody asking about a gig. Okay, right. I just, yeah, I kind of like picking up just the variety, you know, kind of the encyclopedia of it. Kind of in the same way that like Charlie Fry, I think is infatuated on kind of a similar level of just finding those weird things that people are doing and aren't doing and, and working on them. And each year just kind of finding one or two things that I can spend some time and see if I can get. Yeah, because when I was growing up, it seemed to me that everyone was more of a specialist. Like I, I grew up in the era of like the eight minute variety act. And so people would specialize in a particular set of props. And I, I, like yourself, was always drawn to being more of a, like everything interested me, not just juggling, but every kind of skill and talent definitely interested me. And we'll go through your whole list eventually, but there's one that kind of stuck out in my mind because I wasn't quite sure what it was. One of your skills is mental floss. Is that the up the nose, out the mouth? It is up the nose, out the mouth with chains, balloons, you know, a whole variety, anything that'll make that bend. Yeah, I've seen it done with a condom or a balloon where you, you blow it, then a bubble appears out of your nose. I did a balloon. Um, Stephanie Monsu, my other half, would do the condom because I think it's just prettier to see a lady do it. Yeah, the condom from the nose is always a beautiful feminine stunt, if we can say that. <laughs> Which we can, of course, because we, we have a wide range of topics here on the Drop Everything podcast. Now, you were very lucky. I never met this gentleman, but you got to tour with Ward Hall, who was sort of the king of the sideshows. What point in your career did you sort of start touring with uh, these types of groups? Ward Hall was one of my earliest bosses. I mean, we had, you know, after the it was post, um, post me as a fire eater in the exotic cabaret in New York. But it was very early on in 
kind of understanding what circus and sideshow is and what the possibilities are. We were tra- touring, we were on tour with Bindlestiff Family Circus, and we're uh, going through Gibsonton, Florida, a.k.a. Gibstown, right. which is a carnival sideshow winter quarters and retirement community, if you will, and had many of the great sideshow folks have lived there over the years. And bumped into Ward and spent a good bit of time with him, and he basically said, you know, when you're, I see that you're finishing this tour on this date, I'll be loading into Meadowlands. Do you guys be interested in working with me? He asked what we wanted to make or what we'd be, what the lowest amount we would work mm. for is. And then he offered $10 less than that. Oh, funny. Okay. Took the job and loved it. Hard, it was the hardest work I've done. It was 20 to 30 shows a day on the weekends and learned about clove hitches and tents and putting it up. And this fella, Jimmy Long, who worked with, with Ward, was able to swing two sledgehammers and pound stakes in faster than anybody. Work and learn to never walk past the fat man's trailer because urine would be slung out of his window because it was um, too much a hassle for him to go use the toilet. Okay, another useful skill. Never walk past the fat man's trailer. Exactly. And it was the first time that I had ever worked with people who were simply exhibiting on what they were born with as opposed to showing an act. I, in, in Brooklyn, where I live, I live with Jennifer Miller, who's the bearded woman of Coney Island and Circuits of Muck. And she walks on wires and juggles. But working for Ward was the first time that I ever worked with a bearded lady who you pretty much introduced her as a bearded lady. She would stand up and then sit down. And that was pretty much all you know, all that she really brought to the table. And what was Ward Hall like as a man? Any words of wisdom you remember from him? Any Any particular social quirks or personality quirks that stood out? One of the sweetest men I've ever worked for. He had this voice that could just bring like bees to honey. You would walk, you'd walk out on the midway and it would be completely empty. Ward would come to the microphone, start talking, and all of a sudden you would have 150 people ready to come into the sideshow. He's what you call a barker. Is that right? Talker is Talker. the um, the sideshow term for it. But yeah, he, he was, I, I would say, one of the, the top talkers out there. He himself was also a ventriloquist and had a number of other skills. He was never a sword swallower, but he said he he taught dozens of people how to swallow swords. Well, that's one of your skills as well. But before we get to that, let's backtrack a little bit because you talked about the Bindlestiff Family Circus. And one of your AKAs is as Keith Bindlestiff. Let's talk about how you got together with Stephanie and how you formed the circus. We, we met more or less in an all-night diner where we were working graveyard shift in the East Village of New York. And in the late, she learned that I eat fire and kind of in the slow periods of work, we would go in the back alley of the restaurant and I started teaching her the basics of fire eating. And you are also partners in life as well. What, how'd that develop? Was it sort of love at first sight or did it take a while to, for the flame to ignite, so to speak? Um, it was a pretty quick, fl- I mean, we, we actually spent a lot of time around each other before it became a relationship. We were involved with other folks and, um, you know, kind of had to work through all of that. We started just spending more and more time together. We put together a fire eating duo, went down to New Orleans to work Jackson Square, which is kind of a street performing pitch in New Orleans. Yeah. I know it well, yeah. And then returned back to New York and found out that our jobs were no longer available for us. And it was kind of at that point that both of us said, hey, let's make this performing thing work and really haven't looked back since. And where does the Bindlesif name come from? I think I've, I've heard it before in other contexts. What does it mean and what does it mean to you? Bindlesif is a term for vagabond or hobo. It is actually the stick in the bundle that you would carry over your shoulder. Interesting. Okay. Um, Steph and I were hitching, jumping trains, and going to places like New Orleans, to Burning Man. So our earliest period of time is duo fire eating act. One case would be costumes, and one case would be pyrotechnics, and kind of taking whatever travel form we could afford or not afford at the time. It was about this, was it about this time that you also became your other alter ego, Kinko the Clown? Kinko the Clown in his early, definitely started early. It was, I, I would say that Kinko's evolved and matured, and it was... Really, with the help of a fellow named Mark Renfro in Texas, who taught me how to blend grease paint. And the face of Kinko went from being just basic white and black line of a beard to really having a lot of dimension. And then 
just really getting into the mindset of being a tramp clown, which I think at that point was so close to the life I was already living. And you sort of started, would you say you started more of in the adult world or were you always sort of drawn to, because you became very varied. I know you do a lot of workshops for kids. You do a lot of family type entertainment. Were these first engagements more adult themed? We were definitely working kind of the night culture, nightlife of New York City. And because of that, the performers that we were being introduced to were you know, kind of the, um, the adult cabaret realm. But early on, we, we started to do also doing community shows, you know, for all ages and families. Quite a number in New York where we would do a kid's show during the day and then at night in the same space, something that was a little bit more blue. And we, before the podcast started, we sort of talked about this idea of how difficult it was for the public to accept the idea of a variety performer who can play both sides, who can do an adult show, but also be family entertainment. Did you run into a lot of resistance doing that uh, dual life, so to speak? Not much. Not so in New York City, because it's, a, it's an area where folks can accept the fact that an artist is so multidimensional. Once you get out of New York, we would deal with issues where... Yeah, people could not accept that a performer could be completely fine, you know, with their families. And then when the sunset and it was more of a bar crowd that the show changed. I mean, look what happened to Paul Rubin. And he, what he did was going into an adult theater to do what you do in that kind of space. And his entire career was destroyed because of the closed minded nature of the American culture. If people don't know that name out of context, he was also known as Pee Wee Herman. And to me, did one of the most amazing family shows on television where you could have an adult, a teen, and a six-year-old all laughing and having a great time watching the same show. They may be laughing at different moments, but they're all completely engaged. And I've seen very few entertainers before and since who had that power and ability. It's funny. Just today I was reading the news, and there was a place that had banned clown costumes from Halloween as if the clown imagery now is unacceptable. What do you think about that? It's, America's really trying to find more and more groups to hate. And, you know, I think the the peak of this clown hatred was in 2016, as we were going into one of the most hate-filled presidential elections we've ever faced. And kind of, it was during that period that clowns were being assaulted on so many levels. And it's kind of the same way that, you know, we have this fear of immigrants coming in. These specters of anger and fear are just being created and fueled. But clowns are so funny because you think that clowns have this image of, we certainly had our exceptions, the, the John Wayne Gacy clown thing couldn't have helped very much. And of course, Stephen King's Pennywise is a very scary clown. But to me, clowns have always been a figure of fun and, and family entertainment. Somehow they've been vilified. I mean, there's, there's always been dark clowns, there's been happy clowns. To me, they are like any group of people. You have such a, I mean, the amazing thing about clowning is that there's such a wide spectrum of what falls into the clown categories. Yeah, and it's a real shame because I think clowning, when done well, is a beautiful and, and great art form. When done poorly, which I've unfortunately seen some examples of that, there are definitely some clowns I would like not to be clowns, but overall... I'm a fan. With any of this, you know, I've always felt that as entertainers go through a period of being you know, mediocre to crappy and by continuing to do it, you get better. And clowns are no different. That somebody has a passion to become a clown, those first few years are very difficult to watch. And how was your training? Did you have some, some mentors as a clown? Who do you want to give a shout out to is really helping you inform and develop as a clown? In my earliest clowning period, I kind of went with feeling that clowning came from within and did not delve into teaching at that point. Once I kind of started finding my own character, I spent a fair amount of time with Avni the Eccentric mm -hmm. and he taught me to breathe and make my top act, my top spinning act go from being a three minute act to being 15 minutes potentially without adding any tricks. Yeah, he's a brilliant performer and a great teacher. I've had the opportunity to have him on the podcast but also know him as a friend and as a person I've watched some of his workshops. And breathing, of course, is a big part of what he teaches. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I spent some time with Bill Irwin studying a little bit and Steve Smith from Ringling, Mark Renfro, who I mentioned, you know, with the makeup aspect. And then just the privilege of calling so many great clowns friends. You know, there's definitely those that I would consider my mentors and that I spent time, quote, studying with. 
and then hundreds of clowns that I spent time watching and, you know, the videos of, and then just late night talks with folks like Rob Torres about what clowning is, what makes clowning and just getting out there and playing. Yeah, Rob was a wonderful clown. Unfortunately, we lost him this year. I had the opportunity to work with him at Moisture Festival, where I think you and I also worked together at Moisture Festival. We did indeed. And I mean, to me, things like Moisture Fest are so crucial to um, what we do in keeping the variety arts alive, because any of us can go out there and make a living and, and do shows where you're going with an audience, but to have the opportunity to come and be with like-minded folks doing the same racket we are. I mean, the backstage of Moisture Fest to me is one of the biggest gifts that the variety community has in this country. Yeah, us performers call that the hang, that you have to enjoy the hang. It's, uh, I think, a major reason of why we many of us do this. Because, I mean, the rest of it's really hard. You're loading in, you're loading out. Many times it's you're doing all of your own work because it's a solo show. And, you know, you're spending just so many hours doing heavy lifting. And how did your show expand from a duo with you and Stephanie to becoming more of a circus? And at what time did the show develop? And how many performers were the most you ever had in your cast and crew? Bindlestiff Family Circus has had over 500 artists involved with us in our quarter century of existing. So Steph and I had about probably about a year of working New York and around the country as a cabaret fire-eating duo. And it was during this period of time that we started meeting other variety entertainers in the New York area. It was also during this period that Mayor Giuliani was shutting down just about every venue we had ever worked at in the city. So we came up with this idea of hitting the road and kind of getting this, you know, out of New York and to the rest of the country. At the same period of time, we went to our first Burning Man festival and we're walking across the desert and came across a circus tent that was being burnt. Burnt on purpose or burnt accidentally? It was being burnt on on purpose. Chicken John of Circus Ridiculous was um, giving up on circus and burning his tent. In talking with Chicken, we somehow, he decided to give us a ride to San Francisco in his van. And kind of during that ride, we decided to put together a combined tour of Bindlestiff Family Circus and Circus Ridiculous. So we went back to New York and kind of kept doing what we were doing, which included um, the beginnings of a weekly circus cabaret that we were doing in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and then put together a troupe of, I think it was five individuals, jumped in a van and headed west to meet Chicken and crew. And we were performing in a tent or you were performing in nightclubs? What kind of venues were you at? We were performing um, mostly in nightclubs. We were sometimes in info shops, occasional, you know, small community street festivals, punk rock dives. At that point, we were using resources from um, like Maximum Rock and Roll, a book called Book Your Own Life, and a few other assorted really DIY, primarily music and rock-based touring mechanisms. So in the beginning, our touring was taking circus arts to venues that weren't really used to it. This was also the same time frame that Jim Rose was beginning to really get out there. So a few of the venues had an idea of what they would be getting. But for the most part, circus was not what it is now in the U.S. Did you ever cross paths with Jim Rose? I've heard some mixed thoughts about him as a person. Did you ever meet? I've never met him. Well, um, we've met him and we've shared a number of performers with him. Any tales of him? I mean, he seems a pretty extreme character. I mean, um, anybody that's going to keep American Sideshow alive is extreme in some way or another. He was very much in kind of the rock world of it. And with our show, we would, you know, generally brought a little bit more of the circus than the sideshow realm that he did. The times that I've spent with him were totally fine. And we're out there trying to make the world a more interesting place. And I think he did a fine job of doing that. And without him, I mean, if you look at kind of the offshoots of other little community sideshow groups, you know, I think Jim was a major instrumental figure in kind of what sideshow has become over the past 20 years. He was certainly a person who sort of made it modern. I think, like you said, from the idea of the sideshow being exhibiting people in sideshow sort of areas associated with circuses to bring it into nightclubs, into some of the music festivals. And you also performed at Glastonbury Music Fair. That's in England, correct? That is in England. We were there pretty early in our performing career. They've got, I mean, it is such an amazing festival that has a whole music area, theater area, sideshow area, 
circus happening, indoor stages, outdoor stages, and then just, you know, again, the hang that it created for us, the first time we'd ever seen something at that level and was just awe-inspiring to just be in that world. It was also the first time that we saw nine-year-old hecklers that were screaming at us. Like, I mean, the, the, the British kid is, has, you know, can be pretty foul-mouthed to be like, get off the stage, you wanker. And, you know, like, what are you going to say to the nine-year-old saying that to you? Eventually, you kind of watch the other acts and you see that you treat the nine-year-old in the same way that you would a 31-year-old drunk. But of course, your career as a Biddlesips have had many, many different highlights, and you've gone from music festivals. You also performed at Lincoln Center. That sounds very prestigious. I'm not quite sure what what that is. I know I've heard about it. What's Lincoln Center? Lincoln Center is one of the premier performing spaces of New York City. It's where the Met Opera takes place. Avery Fisher Hall is there. It's where Big Apple Circus puts up their tent. And this year's Big Apple Circus, Stephanie is the ringmistress. And Adam Kukler, who's one of the regular Bindlestiff clowns, is the, one of the main clowns. And Mark Gindick is the other clown who's also been very involved with Bindlestiff. So, you know, at this moment, I would venture to say there's three Bindlestiffs involved in the Big Apple Circus in Lincoln Center. So, yeah, we've done some good time with Lincoln Center. We performed with Ornette Coleman. They're doing it like a jazz cabaret probably about 20 years ago. Yeah, Stephanie's an amazing performer. She has great charisma, great presence. Is she the first female ringmaster they've ever had? She is not the first ring uh, mistress that they've had. They've had ring mistress. Ring. They, they call her ring master. We call her ring mistress. And all, all of Bindlestiff's um, on their PR, they always say ring master. But she is not the first lady. They've had a couple others before her. She's probably the best, though. Oh, I would definitely say the best. Yeah, but hey, that's a really impressive position to be in. I congratulate her on achieving that career milestone because I think the Big Apple Circus is one of the best circuses working today. It's it's definitely one of the premier one-ring circuses in America. Now, you've always been sort of political. I know you have your causes and you're, you always had some activism involved in your life. At what point did Kinko the Clown run for president and what brought that about? 2008 and 2012 were the, the two years that he campaigned and it just felt like the right thing to do. You know, we've been watching our, our country kind of have a pretty negative spiral and felt that after, if you look at, you know, what clowns do, at the end of the day, they're trying to make people's lives a little bit better and felt that we really needed to put a real clown in the White House. And how far did you get? Did you actually get like on the ballot? What's the process of trying to run for president? It depends on different states go in different ways. But the problem that we have in the U.S. is only a couple states actually count right in ballots. Um, Kinko's yet to concede because until we've counted every ballot, you really can't say who the winner is. Gotcha. So maybe if all the votes were counted. Kinko may be the winner. Yeah, it's hard to say. Now, do you, do you see a comeback for Kinko in politics? I mean, certainly the way things are going now, there's quite a circus in Washington. There's quite a lot of clowns. I wouldn't use that word. Circus is one of the most organized industries out there, and their job is to make everybody feel a little bit better. I have not seen Washington take that angle in a number of decades. It's just sad, but I think I would vote for Kinko the Clown over some of my options. I mean, he definitely got vote. We will see. I, you know, I don't know about the 2020 because it's the mudslinging disrespect for humanity is, is a game that Kinko really doesn't want to be a part of. Yeah, he, he rises above that. He won't sink to that level. I can see that. This podcast is brought to us basically by the IJA, and that's my first experience of meeting you. When did you find out about the International Jugglers Association, and what was your first festival? I found out about the IJA probably in the early to mid-90s. I learned about the IJA at the same time that I was very much into my anarchist roots and didn't understand why jugglers needed to be a member of an organization. Gotcha. Okay. So then we jump forward. What was my first festival? It was uh, early, early 2000s. Was it because it was close to you? Was it maybe one in the East Coast that you went to? No, it was more because of, I would say, probably the Carmine Street Juggling Club and becoming more and more involved with the local New York juggling community. And then so many folks from there would be going to IJA. So just to continue to hang out with you know my friends from New York. It felt like the right place to be. And let's give some of your friends some shout outs. Who are these people in the Carmine Street group 
that you really sort of buddied up with, who went to your conventions with you? Because you have a very tight-knit group. Who's, who are some of the people in that group? I would say it's extremely tight. Um, Vivica Gardner, who continues to work with Bindlestiff on a number of projects. She generally does most much of the directing of the competitions. Mm-hmm. Slam and Andy Peterson, who is now out on your coast, but we still consider him a New York juggler. He's usually the stagehand for most of what Vivica's doing. Also just had John Crash Jesmond, who always from Detroit, but we always considered him a New Yorker for for all practical reasons. Of course, the lovely Sky King is a, a regular out there, correct? Sky King, who is the DJ for the um, New York City Unicycle Festival that we produce and a number of other events. But yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, this lovely bunch. Um, Matt Henry, you know, was with us at that point. And then if you kind of looked kind of a few years after us, Marcus Monroe, you know, all these just fabulous people that can also juggle. We're a part of it. And this became an important part of my my weekly schedule of making sure that I was at Carmine on Thursday nights and then going out and eating Chinese with everybody afterwards. Now, with your involvement with the IJ, you sort of did you sort of gravitate towards the Renegade? Because I always remember you being really involved in producing and directing and being part of the Renegade shows. I came into the IJA. When um, Robert Nelson was still one, he you know he and Mark Fay on stage uh, hosting Renegade to me is what Renegade was. I can see that. That's kind of what I learned. You know that that was the era that I kind of walked in and said, oh, this is what Renegade is, and became really good friends with Iman and Tom and kind of the whole Renegade crew. You know, I'm coming from New York nightlife and kind of the performance that I do here to then meeting these Renegade folks and feeling that here is a place. A stage at the IJA for the type of work that I was doing at that time. Yeah, well, like we talked about before, this idea that you can do both. Eventually, you also directed. What did you direct? Two or three of the Cascade of Stars. How many did you direct? I've directed two, and then I've emceed a couple where I got to just be the um, the MC, which was really swell to come in and not have to deal with all the the headaches that the producing end has, but to then have everybody after the show come thank you for what you did. Yeah, directing and producing the show at the IJ is kind of a, it's a big job. What made you want to tackle that? I, I put shows together kind of all the time. So, you know, for me, it was, kind of, it made sense. It's, you know, it's what I've been doing with Bindle Stiff and a number of other projects for a long time. It provided me the chance to call up many of my heroes in the juggling world and beg them to come do a show for absolutely no money, which was the hardest part of doing it, but also the way to kind of open the door to call folks that I probably wouldn't have otherwise really reached out to. Yeah, I think the favorite performer I ever got that was in 2017 was Paul Ponce. I was been such a big fan of his. And he's such a great guy. And when he agreed to do the show, uh, the, the one I directed in Cedar Rapids, I was thrilled. Who are some of these these names that you looked at? Like, if I could get that guy, who, who are some of your headliners? Chris Cremo. Great, yeah. Really wanted him bad, just primarily so I could... <laughs> You know, talk gentleman juggler stuff with him. Jochen Shell. Yep. And um, I wanted to see his top act um, live. And, you know, I'd been stalking him online for ages. And, um, you know, to have that that possibility. From an MC perspective, meeting Freddie Kenton, who looked at the mouse stick I had and said, that's a piece of crap. I'm going to make you one and send it to you. Um, and it still is my favorite mouse stick that I have. Vince Bruce, just being, you know, an entertainer to, to be able to invite to such things. I brought, I think I brought AJ Silver one year, Jan Dom, um, you know, kind of of my generation who does mm-hmm. amazing Rolla Bolo. And uh, I mean, I actually had brought Jan to do, he does his comic suspender act. Um, yeah. And then he was like, but I also have this Rolla Bolo act. Ah, we'll put that in the other show. <laughs> you also brought in Twan Lee, am I right? I brought Twan Lee and, and Chris in the same year. Yeah. Oh, two fantastic jugglers, two of my favorites. So, you know, it was a good hat. It was a good year of hat manipulation. Now, you also produced four festivals a year. Let's talk about the festivals you produced in New York City. One's the Unicycle Festival. What are the other ones? I think we're down to three these days. Um, so we have the Unic- NYC Unicycle Festival, which is Labor Day weekend. For a while, I was doing a mountain unicycle festival in upstate New York. But a couple years ago, just didn't have the time to really devote the energy that it needed. And in two weeks, we are going to be producing the New York City Regional American Youth Circus Organization Festival. Bindlestiff was the first regional directors for a, a regional ICO festival, and we've continued to do that since. 
And ICO stands for American Youth Circus Organization. Oh, okay, gotcha. And it's you know it's an organization providing resources for youth doing circus. And then for a number of years, we were behind the New York City Juggling Festival. Basically, the we haven't been able to find a venue and home that we could afford since. But you also have about a monthly cabaret, is that right? We do um, Bindlestiff's Open Stage Variety Show on the first Monday of every month at a place called Dixon Place in the East Village. And it's a, a nice mix of emerging artists, professionals, people traveling through town that just want to have a, you know, show, be able to show New York what they do. So, I mean, it's sometimes world-class entertainment on basically an open mic style format. And if someone wants to get involved with that, how would they contact you? What do you, what do you need to see a video? What's the process? I take the first 10 people that, that reach out. You know, if I'm seeing three area lists, I'll try to tell, ask one of them, you know, how about next month? Just so we're not having the same prop come out again and again. No video is needed. It's, yeah, really the first 10 people that say I'm interested during the show. So we get a pretty broad mix, a little bit of spoken word, weird performance art, but predominantly jugglers, magicians, aerialists, comics, clowns. And how's how's Sean Blue doing out there? He's another juggler I always associate uh, with your cabaret and with New York. Is he still active out there in New York? I think so. I haven't seen Sean in a little while, but as far as I know, he's doing pretty well. Yeah, I'd like to see him at another IJ. He's always been one of my favorite people and jugglers who I get to see performing at the festivals. So I hope to see him again soon. If he's listening, which I, I don't know if he listens to the Drop Everything podcast, but it'd be great to see him again and have him come out to an IGA festival. I mean, I touch his balls quite regularly. I've got a few Sean Blue um, Russian balls and a set of clubs that are always hanging in our place in Brooklyn. Well, if you do see him, Give him a fond hello from me. Let's get back over to you, though, and some of your highlights as a solo performer. You're one of the few performers I've seen who's done both Jay Leno and David Letterman. Can you tell me what you did on both those shows? I've done Letterman a few times. I would say the biggest one I did was I spun a plate and swallowed the stick that the plate was spinning on. And there was a part of this, um, is this anything? And for me to be on the Ed Sullivan stage spinning a plate was one of the biggest honors I've had in my television career, Ed no longer runs the stage, you know, it's Dave that was running it. Mm-hmm. But then when you're in New York and at that point with Is This Anything or other little sketches, many times it would be a situation of you would get a call and it would be, can you be at the studio in 45 minutes? Because Dave right. has this idea. And if you could be, hey, maybe not 45, but I can be there in 55 minutes, <laughs> you'd get the gig. Right. So... You know, there was like, who's in the dressing room? And you'd open the door and it would be Kinko doing Diablos. I went in there and I taught one of their people how to spin a rope. The Letterman thing, you know, I had the one that I really loved doing and felt the, the best about. Just being able to spend time in the Letterman studio where you have this family of that have been working this show for so many years. I mean, it's such a tight ship. And just to be able to go into a place that ran that well. Sometimes Paul and, and Dave would talk crap about you on stage, but the rest of the time, except for on stage, you were being treated like a gem. And now that what they do in that section, I think, is it isn't anything. They raise the curtain, and then there's performers out there, and then they close the curtain. Was it decided that you were something? David actually said, in a few years, this guy will be buying and selling me. Oh, that's a nice quote. Yeah. Did you, did you use that in your promotion, I hope? I've used it a bit, without a doubt. And also, Jay Leno, you're on a section, uh, a segment called Meal or No Meal. And it was in the last few months of Leno. So, I, was re- I mean, I would have, you know, personally really have preferred to do Johnny Carson, but I wasn't old enough for that to be in my resume. You have to be an old man to do Johnny Carson, that's for sure. I know. But, but back in Johnny's days, he would let the performers wear their suits. He would say their full name and do their full act. Where now in today's world of comedy television stuff, you are an odd person in the audience being brought up to do your weird trick that you can do. And they want you to look as casual, street level as possible. Yeah, I got to do that segment as well. I was a portrait painter who did people's pets. I was a pet portraiture. Did you have a a job that you said you did? On that one, I got to, I had a coat hanger that I took and bent and swallowed and Jay pulled it out. Do you have to say you were not a performer of some type? It, it wasn't really brought up, you know, hey, we have this guy in, you know, in the audience that does a weird trick. Um, please show it to us. And on my segment, it was um, Ivan Purcell was also there. So we got to share a dressing room and, um, you know, and show the world what we do in a very casual street level. 
Yeah, he juggled what two ping pong balls with his mouth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a fun. Even that is difficult now to get on TV, even under those auspices, unless you're being judged. What do you think about programs where they judge the talent? I don't like any program that doesn't pay the talent. All of these ones they call competitions in America, if the judges are being paid, the camera person is being paid, I think the artist should be paid. And to me, it's obscene that any of these shows that are making these millions of dollars are not paying the artist. I really don't have a good thing to say about any of them. That's a good point. That's a good point. Why do you think that is? Why do you think is it people just really want the exposure so much or just the chance to win is enough? You know, there have been a couple folks who have been able to use America's Got Talent and a few of the other similar shows to work on their reel, to maybe add another zero and what they get paid. But the majority of the folks that I know go there. They um, they try to take their five minutes of brilliance and bring it down to 90 seconds and then are treated like crap. And, you know, like if somebody's going to treat me like crap, at least pay me to do it. Yeah, there you go. That's that's showbiz. That's showbiz right there. If someone's going to treat me like crap, at least pay me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, I was up for Letterman to talk junk about what I'm doing because I'm paying my mortgage or rent off of a day with Dave. Yeah, and it's, at that point, it's an acting gig. Exactly. So that's how, I, that's how I feel as well. We're on the same page there. You're on one of my favorite shows, though I think you, we were saying you weren't a featured player, but I really like the HBO show Oz which was a prison drama, and you got to be appear on that. Could you tell us what you were doing on that? It was season one, episode six, um, For Your Health was the name of the episode, and they were doing a prisoner variety show. So it was one of those situations where they spent a good bit of time trying to decide what props I would be able to have in a prison, and I ended up being able to perform mental floss of putting a balloon in my nose and pulling it out my mouth. Yeah, because that could also be sort of a prison skill that maybe you had to sort of hide contraband up your nostrils. It was done on set and, you know, had the entire audience or, you know, playing to the actor audience of convicts. So, you know, as I'm performing, they're screaming at me and throwing things in the way that I guess, um, you know, would happen in an authentic prison situation. But the moment that they said cut, you would see the white power folks were actually your bears and kind of gay West West village scene. And just, it was beautiful to see the difference between the way people were acting when the cameras were rolling. And then when they got to be their real selves, once cut happened. Yeah. It's like John Levitt said, acting, right? <laughs> it was acting. Yes, indeed. Well, that sounds like a really fun experience. Any other sort of TV stuff that I don't have on my notes that stands out, even being in the background where you got to be on set, anything that I haven't listed so far. Um, we got to we did a VH1 episode that we had four or five fire eaters from Bindlestiff watching videos that had fire um, involved in it, and there were um, also a group of five firefighters watching the oh. videos. So they were kind of going back and forth between fire eaters and firemen's perspective on pyrotechnics. So that was a, definitely a fun day of VH1 life. That's an interesting concept. So what you were kind of talking about with the techniques of what they did or how effective it was, and they were talking more about the dangers? Yeah, exactly. And then you, through it, you kind of also learn that firefighters, uh, many firefighters are also are pyros. They're into it because they love it. Um, they love the flames. Oh, so they're, they're sort of drawn to it, and that's the profession that allows them to be around it. Exactly. In a safe way, yes. <laughs> or I guess not okay. safe, in a culturally healthy way. Yeah, and there was also been some cases, I guess, of firemen actually setting fires, very rare take cases. Then they get to be the hero who then puts the fire out. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like a clown gag. Yeah, exactly. Well, they, I just happened to be there. It was just the timing was perfect when the fire broke out. I really love this list of talents you have here. So before we get to the end of our podcast, let's go through this list and maybe you can give us a little pointer uh, for our listeners who might want to get into some of these different variety arts. Because in addition to juggling, you have many different talents. And you're able to do dozens of different acts. Let's start with one of my most, uh, the one I would, wouldn't want to do at all, which we, we talked about a couple times, which is sword swallowing. How long did it take you to learn and what are the sort of the secrets of sword swallowing? It took me about two years from the moment that I really decided I was going to start doing it to when I felt an audience could deal with what I was doing to myself. You know, I felt that fire eating wasn't healthy, so I needed to work on a healthier sideshow skill. I also wanted, like at this point, Burning Man was getting more popular and fire eaters were a dime a dozen. So I was looking for you know, sideshow skills that kind of take more time, take, take more focus. And I've always thought of sword swallowing in kind of the same context of five ball juggling. It's just one of those things you really just 
got to put the time in. Yeah, it's a very difficult art form, and there's very few sword swallowers. Uh, one of my friends was Johnny Fox. Um, Johnny Fox was a dear, dear friend, and I would say, as far as entertainment goes, one of my main mentors. He taught me, like, when you go do, do the interview, put the $1,000 suit on so that when you are talking money with the client, they may not be able to pay what you ask them for, but they'll look at your suit and know that you have gotten it. Yeah, we always talked about Johnny. He was one of our first uh, performers we got to know. We actually saw the very first Raspini Brothers show at a fair in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So we go way back with Johnny. We used to say the man, the myth, the money. Johnny Fox. A wonderful talent. He used to run a, um, a little sideshow museum in Manhattan that was pretty much on my walking route to my post office. So I, That was the Freakatorium, right? I'm correct. Yeah, he had a two-headed snake, I remember. Oh, two-headed turtle. Two-headed tur turtle. Um, and then just a number of oddities and other weird things. So, you know, I would stop in and spend an hour with Johnny on, you know, probably about weekly. Yeah, he was able to make sword swallowing entertaining. And like you say, the, the mere act of it, it's also kind of repetitive because it's one thing, you swallow one thing, you swallow another thing. So to have variety, what are some of the weird things you've swallowed? A, a wheelow, which is... Oh, yeah, okay, the wheelow. Rail, tra um, rail trailer, um, then scissors, bayonets. I, I did a cork gun rifle for a while because there's an old sideshow thing where you swallow a barrel of a gun and then you shoot something with a gun. So I tried to do it with a cork gun. Did you ever do the uh, neon tube? That always seemed pretty sketchy. Um, I do. I and st I still do a neon tube. And yes, it is sketchy. Yeah, I've had a couple of people who I know have had accidents. Uh, one performer, Ariel Manx, told me that one time it cracked they, in his um, throat. I mean, glass glass breaks when it changes temperature. So if it's been in a cold car and then going into a warm body, it's not always the best situation. Any close calls yourself? I would say not not that much. There was once where the neon broke right when it touched the back of my throat and I was able to pull it out before anything happened. Um, most of my um, sword swallowing issues have been when I was working for Ward Hall doing 30 shows a day just from the the friction of, you know, swallowing so many times in a day left me really hoarse with that, and now, ladies and gentlemen, kind of voice going on. Yeah, I remember that I think uh, Johnny used to always went lick the sword or make sure the sword was moistened. Is that helpful? It, it definitely is. It's helpful. And it's a good chance to make sure that you don't have any nicks in your sword. Oh, I got you. Yeah, because probably your tongue is a little bit better to have that nick than your down your esophagus. Exactly. Because like, you don't have nerves um, after your throat. So if you have an issue, you're not going to know that something went wrong until it's gotten worse on you know whatever level. Now, you're a wonderful top spinner. I think that's one of my favorite skills that you demonstrate. And don't you like hang the top? From a, something through a hole in your tongue? Am I remembering that? Yeah, I, I have a magnetic a magnetic top, tipped top that I put a hook through my tongue and it hangs from a chain. It used to hang just from the hook, but Avner kept pushing for me to, to make it so I wouldn't have to bend over so much. So I finally gotcha. got around to adding the chain after years and years of every time I'm pulling it out, having Avner talk in my head, but not never adding the chain, but... Now, does the hole in the tongue, does it close up after a while? Do you have to keep poking through it, or is it always there? I keep a piece of jewelry there for that reason. I mean, I, I do that, and I also spin a rope occasionally with my tongue. But would it close up if you didn't have that jewel there? Um, over time, it definitely would get smaller. And then, yeah, they say if, you know, if, if I left it out for weeks, it would probably close up or make it so it would no longer take the hook. Now, what drove you, drove you to tops, though? Because you, you got quite good. Was that something you saw? Was that uh, not Yoke and Shell? Because you probably did it before that. But what drew you to tops? It's one of the things I got really infatuated with the prop before I ever learned how to throw it. And David Hunt gave me a top that was made by prisoners at a rodeo in New Orleans, where every year they do this like fundraising prison rodeo. And it was the first top that I finally could throw and get it spinning. Um, I mean, it took me, you know, I had a few tops and then finally found somebody who could show me how to wrap it and make it work. So I, I can't really remember exactly why it started, but I just started kind of collecting tops. You know, I'm a bit of a collector archivist sort. So, you know, I collect tops, I collect yo-yos, I collect magic stuff that I never use. So the collection started and then really kind of learning the skill of it and then just spending time with folks like Steve Brown and Mark Hayward and, you know, learning about what you could really do with a top. Yeah, so what's the secret? I, I do a little top spinning myself. How would you describe that motion of throwing it out there, then whipping it back to catch it in your hand? 
it's a check mark in the air. It's like skipping a stone across the lake and then adding a little check, a uh, little check at the end to get it back to you. Would you say it's similar to whip cracking? Because you're also a very good whip cracker. Um, it has the same kind of feel. I mean, I think many of the sk- skills are kind of cross training. You know, it's not. It's definitely not the same because if you d- use the same throw, you'd probably have the crack, um, the cracker, you know, popping you in the face on the whip. Yeah, because you're pulled back towards yourself too much. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think in just learning how props move through the air and how to manipulate them, you can start having the skills kind of cross over to, you know, other props. There's similarities, you know, like fly fi- you know, fly fishing and whip cracking, you know, it's something that you can kind of you find another crossover. Well, I'm going to read through the list of your talents, and then maybe you can tell us what you're working on now, and we'll, we'll bring our podcast to a close. But it's whip cracking, gun spinning, sword swallowing, tops... Juggling, of course, plate spinning, mouth stick, unicycling, fire eating, blockhead, the mental floss, straight jacket escape, rope spinning, bull whip, and knife throwing. Did I leave anything out? Probably. <laughs> Probably. I mean, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of cases of crap around here with props of all different types. I mean, I go with kind of this attitude of trying to add a couple things every year skill-wise, you know, to the repertoire. And I, I've always had this mantra of 15 minutes a day to get something. Um, so, you know, kind of once I decide that I'm going to start working on something, making sure that I touch that prop every day, you know, not necessarily for like hours, but just to keep it in the body. What are the newest things? Anything this year stand out as your newest uh, additions to your act? Been really kind of sticking around with mouth stick stuff and kind of finding new things I could do with mouth sticks of being able to, you know, get the wine glass to flip over. I see you do the balance now. You do like the stacking balance, the multi-levels. Yeah, on the the, I do the multi-glass, like the glasses stacking. I just got a drum ring. Like I, 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 you've probably seen where you kind of put a glass of water in, uh-huh. uh, in the drum ring and you can throw it up and catch it in. So I, I um, finally got a couple drum rings. So I'm starting to play with that a bit. Yeah, you put the glass inside the drum ring and the centrifugal force. You can spin it over your head. I think you didn't. You also do a version with a string and the pull cue, the pull, the pull triangle. Yeah, I've been with the pull triangle for quite some time and been wanting to play with the the drum ring. And then was recently up doing the Rochester Fringe Festival in a Spiegel tent. Went to the House of Guitars and you know started just talking to them and they gave me a couple drum rings. Nice, nice. So that's one of your newest newest additions is that type of trick. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the whole gentleman juggler aspect has been something I've been getting into more and more. I mean, I, I would say I've always been interested in that. But over the past decade, getting more infatuated with it because, you know, as I'm nearing the kind of half century point, I'm, I'm looking at the skills that I'm seeing 80 and 90 year olds do because in you know, kind of the world that I, I am in variety, I don't really see a day where um, retirement will be possible. You know, when I saw Kumar at 93 spinning plates on stage, I was like, oh, here's an accent. And it's kind of at that moment that I really started working on a classic vaudevillian plate spinning act. I love your plate spinning act too, because I like the way you do it. I like when you play it, you do it on the rim. I don't like the ones where they put it right in the center and just kind of spin it as if it was a basketball. I like when the stick wobbles. Yeah. Yeah, the gimmicked ones I don't like. Mine mine has, you know, pretty much no gimmick, so it's I'm always fearful that everything's gonna come crashing down. And I think that the fact that I'm kind of also, you know, I'm living the same experience that the audience hopefully is. And then you end with the classic spoons into the glasses? Yeah, exactly. Nice. So what kind of gigs do you have coming up? Let's sort of bring us up right now to the present. What's next for Keith Nelson? Um, I'm, I have a, f- a few-week run going on at the MGM Theater at the National Harbor in Washington, D.C. once a week. It's a big production show, dancers, an aerial act, comedy. And then myself and one other variety entertainer are you know, bringing a little bit of circus to the hour and 70 or the 75 minutes of production dancing stuff. So th- that one's going on. I'm going to be in a circus tent for no end of November and December doing a holiday show, kind of an elves gone wild, but, you know, probably spinning plates and throwing tops in a little Diablo primarily because we'll be selling spinning plates and tops and Diablos at the merchandise tables. So the more showbiz again, exactly. Get kids to see it, hopefully get infatuated and sell them a prop on their way out. Sounds good. Hey, any last words of wisdom from Keith Middlesiff, AKA Kinko the clown, AKA Keith Nelson, Let us wrap it up with one bit of wisdom, not necessarily about how to use toilet paper uh, with one sheet, because you you and I will just share that secret among ourselves. 
What kind of wisdom can you give people who want to get into this world of show business, of juggling? You've had a nice long career already and you have a many years ahead of you. What, how can you sort of wrap it up in sort of one nice pithy sentence to end this podcast? I would say don't burn bridges and look at the history of it. There is you know, such a rich history of what's happened before we were around and many of those skills aren't being done in, at this point and there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Just, yeah, get inspired by what by history, read the books, go out there and, you know, buy all of David Kane's books and Carl Heinz and um, Charlie Holland. And, and yeah, just get into the, you know, what's out there, the uniqueness of our art form. Be a student of the game, right? Be a student of the game. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Keith. This has been a really enjoyable podcast. Thank you for so much for sharing your wisdom and your stories on the Drop Everything podcast. Thank you so much, Keith Nelson. My pleasure. Thanks, Keith. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 63. A big thanks to Mr. Keith Nelson for being the special guest. Best wishes, Keith, in your future endeavors, and I hope Stephanie has a great run as the ringmaster of the Big Apple Circus. Visit IJA at juggle.org. Find out about the International Jugglers Association at juggle.org. Visit them today. And buy yourself a ringdama by going to ringdama.com. Finally, let's thank Karen Holzman, for her engineering of this podcast and for helping me celebrate our 22nd wedding anniversary together. Now go out there, drop everything except when you're juggling.